on this episode of Starting Point. One of the things, of course, that that has been in the news um, has been hallucinations in AI. And if you look at the data, 15% of the time, the answer that a large language model gives you is a hallucination. And so you have to learn how are you likely to get a hallucination and why. That's Christy Moss talking about dealing with hallucinations when presented by artificial intelligence and how to incorporate AI into successful annual giving strategies. I'm Dan Allenby. Welcome to Starting Point. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program. I am so pleased to have with us today my good friend and colleague, Christy Moss. Christy is the Vice President of Membership and Marketing at the University of Illinois Alumni Association. She's also an active consultant and faculty member with AGN. Christy, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here today. So, where are you today? Well, today I am on the beautiful campus of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I work here, as you mentioned, as the Vice President of Membership and Marketing. So how'd you get into this business? So I started um, actually in a student worker position many, many years ago in an advancement office. Um, At the time, I was studying public relations and had my advisor say, hey, I think there's an opening over in the advancement office. And from there, we um, we actually had a a student calling program that was run off of volunteers, and you could kind of sign up to be a student caller, and they would donate some money to your club of choice on campus. So, I was a part of the Communication Honor Society, and I got into student calling, and I actually really enjoyed it, and really enjoyed the work I was doing on the public relations side of advancement, and then. When I was a senior in college, they offered me a full-time position uh, as soon as I graduated. So I graduated on a Sunday and started on a Monday and haven't looked back since. You know, as you're saying that, and I don't know if I appreciated this before this conversation, you and I have known each other for a while and have done a lot of good work together. The number of people we've had on this program, when we ask them how they got their start and somewhere in their answer is the word student caller, I'm thinking to myself, as many, many programs are eliminating their student phone-a-thon programs, that may have a severe impact on the pipeline of young professionals into the advancement industry. I mean, we, we talk a lot about the fact that people don't answer the phone like they used to, so we have to turn to different technologies. And we can talk a little bit about that on this program, but uh, it is remarkable how many people get their start as a student caller. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see how we keep engaging these folks now. Uh, We recently hired our latest student worker who's actually helping um, with social media. So that might be a new way that we that we start recruiting the next generation of advancement professionals. So you started out and and you haven't looked back. You've stayed in the industry for a while and now you are overseeing now, you've worked in annual giving and, and many different aspects of, of advancements, but now you're overseeing a membership program. Would you say that membership and annual giving are similar conceptually or different? What do you think? Kind of at the latest, I am doing both membership and we're doing an annual giving fundraising program through the Alumni Association. So both of those, um, they're fairly similar in kind of like 
you know, the appeal structure and the calendar that we build throughout the year, really membership ends up being focused on acquisition um, more than our fundraising program, which is focused on a lot of times our life members or other people who are already pretty firmly connected with us. So in my mind a lot, I have used absolutely everything, every tool and trick that I learned in annual giving I'm using here um, in the membership program with much more of a heavy focus on acquisition. So in thinking about annual giving and stepping back and kind of looking at the landscape, like what excites you right now that you see going on in the world of annual giving? I think we're starting to borrow more of the tools from our colleagues in other professions around marketing, where we're really looking at our open rate, our click-through rate, um, our landing page rates, and how to improve those with some of the um, strategies and tactics that we're taking from some of those for-profit places. We're learning in a more sophisticated way how to build a marketing funnel. And when a person gets stuck at a place in the marketing funnel, we're learning to determine where those places are and then make in incremental adjustments around um, moving folks forward. So it's it's much more sort of borrowing some of those principles and techniques that have been in the world of marketing for a while and applying them in a different way and creating those marketing funnels and those customer journeys and addressing those with with data that we have addressing those points where people seem to get stuck. When you say we, are you thinking from a, the standpoint of educational institutions and fundraising, or are you speaking more broadly about nonprofits? I think I think that I'm seeing more of an intention towards that in educational fundraising. Although I, our nonprofit colleagues certainly got there more quickly with their giving forms um, than we did. But I don't know that many of my nonprofit colleagues are looking as closely at the marketing funnel. And, and part of that has to do with the types of data and the amounts of data they're being able to collect. Although kind of on the flip side, sometimes the tools that they're able to use promote that sort of thinking and kind of allow them to build these customer journeys. And sometimes what we're using in higher ed is you know, not quite as new or maybe more restricted to the technology that we use at our particular institutions. And that's where I was going with that question, because I was I was curious if, uh, and, and a lot of our listeners are working at educational institutions and advancement fundraising, specifically annual giving. And hearing you talk about that, we're now beginning to, and it's the, I think you were answering the question, what is exciting to you, that we in the education space are are catching up and and taking some of the the data driven technology driven techniques that are being used in the we'll call it industry or the for profit sector, but I I wanted to sort of parse out the nonprofit sector as separate, right? So when we say nonprofit, maybe we're talking about healthcare organizations or arts and cultural organizations or environmental organizations or religious organizations. It was interesting to hear a comment that those institutions were quick. I think I heard you say, as it related to utilizing technology and upgrading their websites. So making like the, the actual giving experience for a donor something that the users, you know, was easy. And I, and I know that there's, you know, still to this day, lots of educational institutions have some archaic websites, but you said nonprofit got, they were pretty quick to keep pace with the for-profit industry in that regard. And I assume by for-profit, we're talking about some of the you know, consumer marketing. So the Amazons of the world and other places that make it really easy to shop and spend money online. Nonprofits 
you said got were a little quicker and then sort of in in third place over here is the educational institutions right but we're, we're catching up now i think so i think so and i think um I think we have a great um, advantage in that a lot of the times the sorts of data that we're collecting, we have the skills somewhere on staff or within our organizations to analyze that data and to make adjustments um, that I think that our for-profit colleagues don't always um, have all of those resources. Since you brought us into this space of talking about data and talking about technology, I think we, we have to talk about artificial intelligence. And I know this is something that that we've talked about and and you get excited about and i even think you've been you've been experimenting with a little bit and figuring out how does this apply in the educational advancement space and alumni relations space and annual giving space so uh i'd love to hear a little bit about that like are, are you are you using ai right now or how are you seeing ai get used in our space i certainly am so one of the things that intrigued me early on is the McKinsey, um, McKinsey Foundation came out with a report talking about the use of AI and its transformative effect potentially um, in marketing. And since at least, you know, part of my job is marketing, I thought this is something I need to pay attention to. So I started from that aspect. I started looking to see how it could be used and kind of for full disclosure, I also teach in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois and kind of have this background in teaching some of these more technical things. And so I started incorporating pedagogically this information into my classes and teaching my students how to use this as well. And this past fall have started giving these workshops to advancement professionals and other communication colleagues across campus. And so what we first do is focus on how these tools are built, because I think when we know how these tools are built, we know what they can do and what they can't do. So this is where I'm, and I apologize, I'm going to cut you off, but be, yeah. before we go too far, because I know some of our listeners are are really curious to hear about this, but before we talk about AI, define it. Because I think, you know, it's one of those words that when you ask people, I'll ask even my kids, like, what, what do you consider artificial intelligence? And I'll get a very different answer than if I ask somebody else. So to you, Christy Moss, and I think of, yeah. of all the people in the industry, that you're the one we want to be talking to about this. What is ai to you what does it mean what does artificial intelligence mean and then and then tell us about some of these applications for it artificial intelligence is really an umbrella term and as an umbrella term it means anything um, that a computer can do that actually simulates something a human would do and that is very broad and intentionally broad and one of the first places that we probably started to interact with artificial intelligence in the realm of annual giving is machine learning, right? And so we started teaching machines how to do things um, that we could do, right? You know, we started with calculators and things like this. But if you move on from there, something that we often use in annual giving on the analytics side, right, we use um, predictive analysis. So there is structured machine learning and unstructured learning and structured learning basically says 
we tell the machine what's in the data and what patterns to look for. In unstructured machine learning, we don't tell it. We, we just give it data and we ask it to look for the patterns for us. So we use this in a lot of our predictive models all the time. So we're sort of already using light forms of AI here and there. What we're kind of seeing now with the advent of ChatGPT and some of these other large language models is this ability to simulate human correspondence. And so when I start talking about this, that's what I've been experimenting with um, with my colleagues this last year, is how does this ability of these large language models to mimic and create human language, first of all, kind of what are the limitations of that? What can I expect from that? And I think once we learn what we can ask of the tool, um, we ask better questions and we get better results. So one of the things, of course, that that has been in the news um, has been hallucinations in AI. And um, if you look at the data, 15% of the time, um, the answer that a large language model gives you is a hallucination. And so you have to learn how are you likely to get a hallucination and why. And sometimes that's by using, um, for example, if you try to use ChatGPT as a search engine, and it's not really built to be a search engine, um, the functionality and the technology be behind ChatGPT is predictive in nature, but what it does is predict text. So if you think about your cell phone and you're entering words into your cell phone and your cell phone is predicting what the next word is going to be, ChatGPT is like that, kind of a souped up version of predicting what the next word should be. Some of the other AI technologies actually work the opposite way around, where they're, they're they're based on mathematical algorithms that do have search functions embedded. So Google's BARD is an example of that. And both of those technologies at some point will sort of meet in the middle. Um, but to go to ChatGPT and ask it factual questions, it will absolutely hallucinate. It will come up with an answer that sounds credible, um, but isn't. And I like to demonstrate that um, to my students and in classes as well, because um, showing them how you can get a wrong answer very easily that is very convincing um, is a great demonstration. So hallucination is a wrong answer? A hallucination is anything that it makes up. So if it creates, for example, one of the things I do with my students is I um, say that I would like the AI to come up with um, an academic article on a particular topic. And it will come up with an article and it will give me an article title. It will give me a researcher. It will give me a, um, a journal. And for example, the researcher will be a real researcher in that field. The journal will be a real journal in that field. The article is completely made up and doesn't exist. Um, so I think it's, you know, things like that, that we certainly have to be careful of. But I think once we learn how to use the tool, it can be really impactful. And what I have found the most impactful is taking something like your messaging matrix, where you have your different speakers, right? And you have your different audiences. So like word appeal. Yes. Yes. To bring this to Daniel Giving for a second. So you're, you, you got an audience, you want to raise some money, you want to send them an appeal. Yes. And you're creating a messaging matrix, which is going to say, okay, here's a few segments that are distinct and I want different messages and, and a different voice for each of these segments. Yes. And you're about to tell us enter AI. Yes. And you can use, um, you can use AI to build messaging matrices, certainly, but you can also use them very effectively.
to write your appeals, to write your letters, to write your emails. Um, it does a great job at suggesting A-B testing. One thing I like to do is say, okay, here's my email. Give me some subject lines based on this that I might A-B test and tell me the best practice that I'm testing for each of these subject lines. It does a great job of that. One, one place where I would say it's not great at is coming up with creative content. So you're only going to get as good as you give in that case. And so you kind of have to have already a creative campaign in order to develop something like that. But if you've got kind of like your standard marketing language or your standard messaging points that you want to make sure you use in appeals, it can very quickly and very easily um, write these types of things for you, which I think is kind of a big step forward for us. So this is exciting. And terrifying <laughs> at the same time so to, to people that worry um i think some people might worry that this technology could take their job away or make that become obsolete or people worry you know that these hallucinations could sort of send us in directions that are not good directions and and not be in our best interests and others best interests so Again, bringing it back to like the fundraising space for a second and educational institutions and, and, and raising money for them, what should they be cautious of? Or are we not in a place we need, we need to worry about being cautious just yet? Should we just be more worried about getting familiar with it? But what, what, what would your advice or what would you caution annual giving professionals out there who listen to this conversation and, and then they want to go apply it to their own program, help them use it to do their jobs better? What should they be careful about? So the thing to be most careful about is that for the most part, these large language models are open source, meaning everything that you put into the machine is kept and goes into training the next version of the machine. So the best rule of thumb there is if you wouldn't post something anonymously on Reddit don't put it into the large language model. So you don't want to put any private or protected information. There have been, you know, news stories about folks from certain companies putting in stuff that's copyrighted or stuff that's patented and that becoming a part of the model or leaking to the market because they were using it to write an announcement email. So anything that's donor data sensitive, do not put it into the model. Um, Having said that, there are also up and coming models of this that are going to be um, protected from that. If you are able to purchase something that's a that's like a license for an organization, you can get around some of those things. But if you're just using the free models that are out there for your own personal use, um, there are ways to keep it from collecting that data. You do have to go into the privacy settings and tell it not to keep track of that, which means you won't have any of those conversations saved. Um, so I use it as something primarily for marketing and appeal writing and not at all for things that are private or personal. Do you foresee from a like a customer service perspective, do you think I mean, we, we think a lot of it in the fundraising and alumni engagement space, sort of the outreach that we do, but we also need to sort of be there when our alumni and our parents and other constituents are coming to us. You know, when I think of AI, I also think of that they've replaced call centers in a way. I will never forget the moment, and this was not that long ago. And I was uh, calling the phone company because I needed to, I was trying to update something, I tried to put the phone number on my son's cell phone. And I called AT&T and 
I was being sort of walked through the the virtual um, receptionist and was who was answering a lot of questions. But I really wanted to talk to a person because I just needed to get this over with. And so I sort of insisted upon it. And they said, so we hear that you want to talk to a representative. Is that right? I said, yes. And they said, okay, well, I'm going to put you through to a representative, but it's going to cost you $5. Mm. I thought about it for a second. And then I said, all right, why not? And I will say it was the best $5 that I've spent in a long time because it was one, it was nice to talk to a person and they really did fix my problem very quickly. Um, but do you foresee universities and advancement shops sort of using AI from like a customer service or a donor relations standpoint? at any point. We talk a lot about the outreach and the writing. I think some places already are. I know at the University of Illinois, we already employ a chatbot on our giving page. So you get stuck with something. There are kind of like preloaded answers, right, that it can walk you through. What they noticed there is that it did reduce people calling to ask these types of questions that could be easily answered by about 80%. So the folks who were getting through and calling, they really did have an issue that could only be fixed by a person. But a lot of times people we've found these days don't even want to make that phone call. They're looking for the information. They're having a hard time finding it. So if they're able to interact with the chatbot to get the basic information, they're great with that. If they really do need to call, they will they will still pick up the phone. So it's not a case where we're redirecting people to a chatbot. It's just something that we have out there that does then cut down on the number of phone calls that we receive. Very exciting. But let's let's switch this. Uh, let's let's talk about you a little bit. So you you talked about how you got into this industry. Uh, you've been in it for a while, and um, you you know you love to teach about it. And you're an active practitioner, and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Definitely an exciting time. Um, but as you think about your career and and how you've sort of grown and evolved, tell us a bit more about that. Like, how did you get into you know how did you end up in the current role, and you know who inspired you? I mean, how did you you know did you think about mentors or or people out there in the world that had a big impact on you. We have a lot of listeners that tune into our program because they want to be inspired by people like you. So, you know, who inspired Christy Moss? I um, came up through advancement sort of by just doing the next thing that someone needed me to do. I was trained in writing and then got over into fundraising and was doing annual giving, fundraising and stewardship and marketing. And then the central office of campus said, hey, we think you should work for the central team. So I said, great. They said, we think you should be a programmer. I said, I've never done that before in my life. I guess here's a new thing to learn. So then I learned programming and went the route of, um, so programming segments and appeals and things like that, and went the route of kind of adding a new set of skills and and getting more techniques around data analytics. And so I think my career has just been about always being open to learning the next thing and constantly evolving um, in, into just the next role. Um, and that's kind of how I got here as well. The membership program had gone dormant at the University of Illinois for about 10 years. And the Alumni Association said, hey, we're going to restart this. Um, and so I was like, I love to build things. I'm I would love to come over and and help rebuild this program and kind of get something started from scratch. Um, and like you kind of alluded to in my previous role, I was the executive director of strategic engagement and reporting to me was annual giving and stewardship and marketing and communications and events and data analytics and kind of this umbrella. And so I left behind managing a rather large staff 
to go to a really small staff to kind of start over and build something new um, and kind of use all of the different tools and techniques to kind of get something off of the ground. So that's really what inspired um, that next career move for me. I think a lot of my my mentors have been really personal to um, my own career story. Um, here at the University of Illinois, we have kind of a, a couple of different types of people that come through. We have people who are looking to come here as a stop. It looks great on their resume, and then they move on and go somewhere else. And then we have the type of professional who um, stays and stays and stays. We have a beloved um, former president who started as a faculty member in our College of Aces and then became the dean. And then, you know, and he just was here and a solid guy and for a really long time. And so I've been at Illinois now for a really long time. And a lot of my mentors here, I have seen them navigate the political challenges of, for example, having a chancellor fired and having, you know, these kind of scandals in the news and, and how they kind of manage the brand and the reputation of the university while we go through those difficult things. So I've had lots of conversations with those people. And some of them are women and said, hey, this is kind of still in a lot of ways, um, a male-dominated um, space, at least here at our university? And how do you recommend um, kind of women approach this work really specifically? So a lot of my mentors have been um, people that have been along my path that have been willing to take the time and willing to teach me. And so I say for others who are kind of in this same space, if you can find those people who are willing to be interested or you can find places to learn. And the nice thing about working at an educational institution is oftentimes there are these learning opportunities um, that are just sort of right here. One of the first kind of seminars I ended up taking at the University of Illinois was on how to develop surveys. And it was taught by the survey kind of academy at the university. And they went through this multi-week curriculum and it was over lunchtime. And I gained so much information and practical knowledge from that. And so I love having access to that and having access to learning. And I think that's also another thing that has inspired me throughout my career. As I'm listening to you, I, you know, the vision I'm getting in my head is, is you talk about sort of the way that you've uh, evolved in this industry is it, was, it doesn't sound as if it was that you came in with a particular vision or a long-term goal and, perceive, and and pursued that. Right. Some people do. They get very focused on that. It sounds like you um, immersed yourself in this business and then as little opportunities arose, you sort of just kind of rolled with it. It wasn't like one big opportunity. It was these little opportunities. And I think you, I, I was hearing the same thing, even with mentors, it's these, you know, people that will, people that can have a lot of influence on you don't necessarily need to wear the title of mentor or be your boss. Right. Or it doesn't even need to be a person. You can be very influenced and, and get inspired and get guidance from opportunities like a class that's available, especially through educational institutions. So that's important, you know, and I think as we, you know, and I, as we, but as you look at younger people, new, new people to the industry, and there's a lot of transition right now going on. What do you think about when you look at the sort of the new people in the industry? Are you excited by them? Do you get concerned for them? I think newer folks come into the system a lot more um, linearly career focused than I was about title and promotion and advancement. 
and they they certainly have goals in mind and a lot of the times they are willing to work for an organization as long as those goals are mutual and they feel like they are moving forward and progressing in their career. So I am quick to have a conversation about where you want to go, what you want to learn, and how I can help with that. Even if that means kind of like giving you the skills to promote you kind of out um, into the world for your next role. So I very much kind of see myself as a mentor for the time that they're with me. And I often say things like, I, I teach um, in these different areas. I present at conferences. I write papers for journals. If you're interested in doing any of those things, I am willing to help with you to get your foot in the door. So for example, um, one individual who works for me, he's earlier in his career. And last year, um, I said, hey, let's do a presentation together um, at a conference. Let's you know, co-present on this so that, you know, you can kind of get started so that next year you can present on this, on these particular um, topics yourself. So I think that I'm always looking for that when I'm um, working with folks. And then honestly, the people that I have had um, on staff, the people that I have hired, I haven't had the problem of the revolving door. No. tend to stay. And I think if they feel like they're moving on or they feel like they're gaining skills or they feel like you're preparing them for the next jump, um, they tend to be a little bit more satisfied. I will say that takes a very intentional type of management and an intentional type of interest in their career path um, that's sort of separate from your interest as a manager of an organization. Um, but for me, it's been a great retention strategy. It's almost, I'm getting this correct, as a management style, you try to engage the people who are working on your team and, and encourage them to do things and learn things that might appear to sort of prepare them to move on and outside of the organization. Yes. But what you find is, aha, it actually makes them want to stick around and stay longer. It does. And the revolving door, I think what you're talking about is this high turnover rate that educational advancement programs, annual giving especially has. I mean, if you keep somebody for 18 months, you're probably lucky. Yes. When you're looking to hire somebody new, is there a characteristic that you look for? Is there a question that you ask? Is there a trait that you look for that you think makes people successful regardless of their role? When I'm going to a search committee and I'm saying, you're looking for this type of person, I tell them if they're open to learning, I can train them to do anything. I can teach you. I'm a good teacher. That's kind of my strength. So I can teach you how to do something. But what I can't, what I have to look for because I can't, um, I can't teach is curiosity. I can't teach someone who isn't interested in learning. So as long as I get someone who is kind of flexible and malleable and interested in learning, then I'm actually not looking as much as have you had this experience or that experience or something else? It, it has to do kind of the two qualities that I'm looking for. Are people, you know, hardworking and willing to do the work? And um, are people curious and interested in learning? And as long as we have those two kind of characteristics, hiring seems to, to go just fine. Um, and once early on in my career, I filled all of my annual giving positions. No one's left. Um, and I, you know, those people have been here while well, I was the annual giving director, I think, starting um, 10 years ago. So 
we haven't had turnover um, since then. And now on my new team, as I've hired people, I haven't had turnover. So I've been really fortunate um, in that regard. And the interesting thing is when you do have people for longer term like that, the types of things that they can take on and manage independently and kind of speak as a voice um, for you in certain circumstances is really worth um, you know, retaining those individuals, certainly. When you think about the young people coming in, I, I say young people, you don't you don't necessarily have to be young in years, but young in terms of experience in the industry. Is there any advice you'd give to them? I mean, you're talking about the characteristics you look for in them or the approach that you take as a manager that, you know, hopefully makes them successful and keeps them around. If you had advice for them and, you know, if they were saying, Christy, I, I want to be successful in this industry. I want to build a career at an educational institution. I want to be good at fundraising and advancement. What would your advice be to them? So the thing that I love about annual giving and marketing is that it is always evolving and it's evolving at the pace of kind of like the customer in our everyday world. So what I say to them is you need to be flexible. You need to continue to be willing to learn new technologies. Um, You need to be curious and continue to be curious. So I think those qualities are kind of the most important things. And I think that's doubly so when you're working in higher education, um, even more so than just a nonprofit, because the environment and kind of like what we're around all of the time are people who are constantly thinking about learning and pedagogy and the ways people learn and research and things like that. So I think to kind of embody that sort of mindset as well, particularly if you're interested in staying in higher education, I think is always um, important for young colleagues. Great. Tell me about Taylor Swift. Mm. You asked kind of like who inspired me and why and in an offline conversation. Yes. And you said for me, it is Taylor Swift. Yeah. And it's Taylor Swift because she keeps evolving. Mm. She keeps evolving and she keeps planning. And her planning is years in advance. And I think that's um admirable. It's not something we often have the presence of mind to do. A lot of the times we're looking at our one-year plan and what this impacts. Um, but even just being able to look for several years, you know, like for example, a couple of years ago, I started testing different points in our marketing funnel. And so it's like year one, what we're trying to do is drive up the open rate. Year two, we're going to focus on click-through. Year three, you know, so it's like having even these overarching multi-year plans and continuing to evolve in the way that we think about ourselves and think about our work. And so I think that's why, particularly as a businesswoman, um, she continues to inspire me because she continues to evolve and she doesn't kind of stay locked into one particular genre or one particular way of thinking. Um, I think recently there's been talks about, you know, her looking at doing film next and what that might mean um, as a career. And I think my career continues also um, to evolve. And those pieces that are presently evolving are always the things I'm most excited about that give me the most energy. Um, So I'm a person who loves evolution and I'm energized by it. And so that's why um, she inspires me. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes it's easy for me to think of those things like in contrast with another, like, you know, planning. And I, I like, you know, I'm a planner in an annual giving. And, and here at, at AGN, we, we, t- we try to teach 
how to plan. Um, and one of the challenges you talked about it is, you know, how far out do you look? Um, but at the same time, you know, you want to plan, but then you need to sort of adapt to real life. It's happening now. That's the evolving piece. And that can be very upsetting for a lot of people and very disruptive. The way you were describing your own career and, and even talking about Taylor Swift, there was sort of an elegance to that. You're just sort of like riding the wave, but they're, they're not in contrast with another. You can plan and then sort of evolve in real time too. Um, but as you think about planning, like how far, like is, is there, how far out is too far? Or, or is there not? I mean, you know, humans on average only live, you know, into their seventies. Right. We're living a little longer, but, but an annual giving, you, you do have to have a plan, which is, you know, there's 12 months in a year and you, and you have to do that every year. So you're, you're always sort of thinking about the next one, but then you want to think in terms of quarters, you know, the concept of a quarter, the three month period, you know, businesses run on this, you know, taxes paid in this way. And it's, the quarter is a very powerful sort of construct for planning, but you can even get, you know, you can bring it into a month or bring it into a week you know, and, a, and like a production schedule for something gets very granular, you know, can get multiple steps in a day. Right. Back to that question, how far out is too far to look or is there such a thing? Yeah, I think it, it probably depends on, you know, what part of our career or life or work that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, probably with my work, if we're in campaign mode, like you said, there are plans through the end of the campaign. Um, if we're not in campaign mode, we're probably about to be. And so, you know, campaign modes are usually eight years long in between is usually three. So depending on what we're in is usually what long-term planning for, uh, we'll say work mode I go to, um, career mode is a little bit different for me. I, I think I heard um, some great advice early in my career, which is by the time you're midway through your career, you need to start planning your retirement career or what you want to do as you kind of glide out. So I've, I've, and start, you know, putting things towards that in the middle of your career. So I'm definitely now starting to think about, I know I'm far away from retirement. Like, I've been at the university 16 years and I need another 14 to be eligible to retire. So I'm a ways out. Um, well, I heard the big challenge of retirement now isn't, it used to be people worried about having money to retire. Now the concern is, what are you going to do? <laughs> crazy. You can, you yeah. Can, you can work too long and then right. you're not relevant in your industry, but right. a lot of people retire. I think there's a whole generation that's facing this right now. And they don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah. Uh, they have enough money to do it, but they haven't thought about how they're going to live their life at that point. That's a tough question. Right. So that's that's kind of like I'm at that midpoint now where I am thinking about what does a retirement career look like and laying kind of like the groundwork for that now. Um, so that is super long-term planning for me. That's probably 20 years or so. Um, but I think it's kind of important to kind of look at that in various stages and then adjust and, and down to like weekly planning. I certainly sit down once a week on Sundays with the calendar and the kids and all of the things and, you know, make sure that everything is sort of lined up for the week, that the things that got put on the calendar well in advance, the don't forget about this or whatever. And now it's the week of, you know, what that looks like kind of on a weekly schedule. So I think looking at those things in a multitude of ways and, and flexing with that. And I, I do, um, sometimes 
you make long-term plans that you come to realize aren't going to come to fruition. And I would say just as an important part of the process for me is taking a little bit of a moment to grieve that. Oh, I thought I was going in this direction. I'm not going to be able to. It kind of you know, makes me sad. I'm feeling some blocks in that area. And then I kind of say, okay, now where is in in my mind, I sort of like to think of it as a river. Where is the river flowing now? And where can we move now that that we um, didn't have the opportunity to before? So it's kind of a both a long and short-term thing. I came across a bucket list that I had created just, just over this past weekend that I created 10 years ago. I was going back through it. And I was proud to say that of the 10 things that were on it, I had I had checked off five of them. And then the three on there, I was like, why the hell would I ever want to do that? And I took <laughs> right. them off. So um, before we jump off, read any good books lately? I think I do like um, the book for executive functions of a team. Okay. Um, one of the things that I've been doing lately is um, micro learning. Micro learning is a new kind of a popular thing. And I've been looking at this content on TikTok and YouTube. And they're just kind of, you know, brief informational doses about a particular thing. I love to introduce it to my students in class. And it's become kind of a second way of me getting kind of some of the informational content to kind of keep on top of my career that I've been using more than. Um, kind of like book reading, I guess. I love it. I love it. Christy Moss, it is always great to talk to you. Um, and thank you for all the the great work that that you've done in partnership with AGN. Uh, we love working with you. You're a great teacher. We uh, look forward to a lot more ahead. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. To learn more about our membership program and everything AGN has to offer, visit our website at annualgivingnetwork.com. 